With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. The Volume. It's the Colin Coward Podcast presented by FanDuel. The NBA season kicking into gear, baby. No better place to get in on the action than FanDuel. FanDuel app is safe. You get paid fast. A lot of ways to play. The spread, the money line, team totals, players, props. A lot of stuff. Over-unders. Jump into the action. Same game parlays are my favorite. Just use the promo code Colin and download the FanDuel app today. This is Prime Cuts, the best of the Colin Coward podcast. So a couple of things. I want to start by talking about uh, the pay-per-view event, Jake Paul, the polarizing semi-boxer, certainly working hard at being one, was going to finally fight a real fighter, Tommy Fury. Now, Tyson Fury is a two-time heavyweight champ from Great Britain. Tommy Fury is more a model who can box a little. And so let me give you a story years and years and years ago. They opened up a casino in Vegas called the Paris, right? And it was a replica of the Eiffel Tower. And so I had a friend who's like, hey, let's let's go to uh, um, I saw it as we flew in, but he said, let's let's go so you can see this replica of the Eiffel Tower and they've got a good restaurant inside. And I was like, all right, fine. And we went and I saw it and I, I was impressed you know, by the by the effort. But once you saw the replica of the Eiffel Tower, there was really no reason to see the replica of the Eiffel Tower for a second time, okay? And that's sort of how I feel with Jake Paul, is that I thought the story was really fun. And as he was knocking out football players and washed up UFC guys or MMA guys, that was fun. I wanted to see him fight a real fighter, and I did, and it wasn't a great real fighter. It was Tommy Fury, who I'd seen two pieces of videotape of him fighting earlier, and he was mostly awful, and he completely controlled the fight. He was more refined, more polished. He actually had a jab. It was highly effective. He was confident. Um, he really controlled the fight. I had two rounds going to Jake Paul and one of them, the final round, because he briefly knocked down Tommy Fury for about half a second. Uh, nobody ever really got hurt in the fight, but Tommy Fury's not athletic enough or dynamic enough to be a great fighter. His brother, right, is uh, the two-time champ. Tommy's just a pedestrian athlete, good-looking kid, you know, great body, uh, but doesn't have the power or the athleticism to be a great fighter. But he controlled the fight. And, you know, there's a lot of really talented people out there. And they're, they have a two handicap. They're not close to playing on the tour. They can go out with their buddies, shoot one under par, two under par. They're not close to being on the tour. Jake Paul is a big, strong, tough kid, hard worker, made a name for himself. I do think it is interesting when he fights recently retired football players or washed up mixed martial art guys. That's fun. 
Can he, you know, we watched an NFL player for years, a tough guy retires, goes and fights Jake Paul. That's interesting to me. But watching him face boxers, it's like going to the Paris Casino. All right. I saw it. It was kind of fake. And uh, I'm done with it. And so totally supported Jake Paul, thought he would win the fight. And instead, um, the real boxer who'd fought real fighters was more refined, really kind of did whatever he wanted to. He landed significantly more punches than Jake Paul did. Jake Paul, remember the baseball player Adam Dunn? If Adam Dunn was a boxer, he would be Jake Paul. Would not hit for average, swing for the fences and occasionally land. That's sort of Jake Paul. Uh, combinations were not great. There's no real jab of note, uh, kind of outclassed. Uh, but I love the effort. If he keeps fighting, that's fine. But, you know, I'm done buying his fights. Unless he fights a really, really popular all-pro level NFL guy that retires. That would be interesting, maybe. So, all of us, um, through the course of our journeys, um, our experiences is going to change our perspectives, right? Hopefully, you know, you do something for long enough. It works. You keep doing it. It doesn't work. You move off it. And I'll give you an example of this. So when I first started dating my wife, Anne, uh, she was an experimenter if we went out to eat. You know, I would order the chicken parm, the New York strip steak and broccolini. I would go with things I knew were going to be good. And my wife was a big gambler. You know, she's going out with sea urchin salad with a squid ink vinaigrette. And about half the time, she'd be eating off my plate. She's like, eh, I don't really like it. And I said, if you're going to experiment, experiment at home. And then just throw it in the trash and start over. I said, but when you go to a restaurant, especially in Los Angeles, it's like $150, $160 for dinner. Why roll the dice? Just go with something you know is popular. So I always go into a restaurant and I'm like, what's the most popular dish? Every restaurant has strengths and weaknesses on the menu. Stuff they're really good at and really known for. And I order it. I could not tell you the last time I went to a restaurant and left unsatisfied. I just go with what I know is going to be good. I'm paying a lot of money for it. My wife, over the course of our relationship now, is a much more consistent restaurant order. She kind of goes with what she knows she'll like. Sea bass, you know, whatever it is. Bolognese. And my point is, her mistakes or her misses, her frustration is probably a better word, changed her perspective and habits. And, you know, I was the other day, I'm sitting there watching some footage from the media on the combine, the NFL combine. And I used to try to, for years and years, I've been doing this 30 years, try to guess if quarterbacks were going to make it, we're going to bust. And over the last two years, I've really changed my perspective on this about trying to predict what quarterbacks are going to work. Last year's class and, and the class two years ago, uh, I think I nailed completely. I thought Trevor Lawrence, Mac Jones, Zach Wilson, Justin Fields pretty much nailed that class. Nobody really knows about Trey Lance yet. We really don't know. I, my guess is it's not going to work, but nobody knows. It's not playing. But I've come to the conclusion after a lot of misses that here's how I look about all these first-round quarterbacks. In the last 10 drafts, we've had 30 first-round quarterbacks. We've only had eight stars. Eight. 
And in most instances, the stars have landed in the right spot with an offensive coach. Deshaun Watson with a Bill O'Brien, Patrick Mahomes, it helps with Andy Reid, is that most of the time, maybe every fourth or fifth year, maybe twice a decade, there is a quarterback good enough, Trevor Lawrence, Andrew Luck, I believe Caleb Williams at USC, to overcome chaos. But 95% of them aren't. Of the last 30 quarterbacks taken, first round, it's a decade, 12 whiffs, 12 misses, 10 starters, but really need to be carried, Dak Prescott, Kirk Cousins, and eight stars. And by the way, I'm giving Kyler Murray a star rating. I don't know. He's close. And so I just, based on so many misses, not any individual miss, but I just don't think with very few exceptions, any of these kids can overcome the Chicago Bears ownership and front office. I like Justin Fields. Trevor Lawrence would make it work. I don't think he's good enough to overcome the nonsense. They hired a defensive coach. Now we have a first-time GM. I've never liked the ownership. It's a defensive culture. It's a hard town to be a quarterback in. The media's tough. The weather's brutal. <laughs> You're in a division with, you know, Aaron Rodgers. And right now, Kirk Cousins and Jared Goff, you got to win some shootouts. Bears defense sucks. Offenses are good in the division. So um, that's how I look at this draft. And, and the one, none of the quarterbacks who will go in the first round, C.J. Stroud, Richardson at Florida, Will Levis at Kentucky, or Bryce Young. None of them, I think, are good enough. None of them are all-star stuff. None of them are Andrew Luck or Trevor Lawrence or Caleb Williams. I think whichever team goes to Seattle at the number five pick, if they draft a quarterback, that's the quarterback that will win. They have a star coach, a star left tackle, a star running back, a star receiver, an ascending playoff momentum roster, cap space, and Geno Smith. So you don't have to start year one. That feels like CJ Stroud goes there, sits behind Geno for a year. I think he'll be successful. I think Bryce Young, same situation. Uh, Anthony Richardson, Florida, same situation. I don't think there's a quarterback guaranteed to succeed. I think there's a spot in this draft, Seattle, number five pick. That's the spot. Whoever they get has a very high probability to be somewhere between a starter and a star. A really nice, really nice starter. Looking to get more out of the NBA season? Well, now's the perfect time to download FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, new customers get a no-sweat first bet up to $1,000. That's free bets back if your first bet doesn't win. The promo code is always Colin. FanDuel has tons of betting options. I like the same game parlay. Bet a little, win a lot. FanDuel's app is safe, secure, easy to use, and you get paid your winnings really fast. The no-sweat first bet up to 1000 bucks. Promo code Colin. Make every moment more this season with FanDuel, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. 21 plus and present in Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Indiana, and Louisiana. 
permitted parishes only. Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Tennessee, Virginia, or West Virginia. First online real money wager only. Refund issued as non-withdrawable site credit that expires in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 533-42-ARIZONA 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat. Connecticut 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Indiana, Jersey, and Virginia 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan 1-877-H-O-P-E-N-Y or text H-O-P-E-N-Y 467-369 in New York, Tennessee. Redline 1-800-889-9789 Tennessee. Visit 1-800-GAMBLER.net in West Virginia. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Well, as I was talking in the preamble, um, former players, GMs, younger GMs, it used to be that baseball was really the sport that had uh, fairly profound off-seasons. Hot stove. And then over time, uh, the NBA kind of moved into that territory. Now it's just the NFL. These young GMs have no problem turning over a third of their roster. I love it. I think we're going to have a wildly active march, and I can't wait for it. It's also now, um, you know, star quarterbacks are willing to move. You know, Russell Wilson, Matt Stafford, Tom Brady. With that, we bring in the volumes, Mike Silver. Um, so I, I want to address even the week I was off, there were three or four stories. So Russell Wilson has denied it, but you and I had talked about it at some length on an earlier podcast that John Schneider, Russell Wilson, and Pete Carroll, it's a total power struggle. By the way, Pete Carroll and John Schneider had a little bit of one, right? Um, as, as I was told for years, Pete could sometimes cherry pick on the draft and, and kind of use some influence, and it would frustrate the scouts for the Seahawks. I was told that two times by two different people. Uh, that had worked with Seattle. They loved Pete. Uh, so Snyder wanted a little more control and more money. He almost went to the Lions, remember? Um, but when the story came out, I wasn't surprised by it. I also wasn't surprised that Russell Wilson immediately denied it. What was your take on the story? Um, you know, it had gotten really, really bad, and they kind of patched it together for that last season. Um, which, by the way, ended with Russell coming back, playing well, and beating an Arizona team that at the time needed to win um, to try to win the division uh, and on the road. So it ended kind of nicely. But, um, yeah, there was a power struggle. And, you know, John and Pete, look, for two people who didn't know each other and were matched together, um, they've had the model relationship. So there's been some push and pull, uh, you know, maybe the front office wanted young players to play more, you know, kind of your typical coach versus personnel philosophical divide. But uh, they were very much aligned on, uh, we think this has run its course with Russell. Um, and Russell, in fairness, had tried to get out the previous year. I mean, 
it was dressed up as, hey, we're not asking for a trade, but we're going to publicly list four teams. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so Russell kind of acted out and tried to get out. They patched it together. He got injured. It didn't go great. It was time for something to happen. And you have a relatively new owner, Jody Allen. She's been around. Yeah. Hadn't been the owner for most of that time. Um, and so did Russell technically go to them and say, it's me or them, or was it couched more as this can't go on the way it right. is? And so maybe that gives there's some defensibility there. But um, what I would say to all of it, though, is that it'd be one thing if we were hearing about this now and Russell had gone on and had a really good year with the Broncos and Seattle had kind of struggled to find its way. But the entire season, as seasons go was a complete referendum on who was right and who was wrong, right. at least in the short term. Russell looked nothing like uh, the guy we'd seen for 10 years that Geno Smith was a pro bowler. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of like year one of Brady Belichick. Like, I think it means Brady was the winner <laughs> because he went to the Buccaneers <laughs> and won the Super Bowl and the Patriots, you know, struggled. So, you know, obviously it's it's never that simple, but um, you know, Russell, I think, is emotionally intelligent enough to understand what's riding on his and Sean Payton's potential partnership. Uh, that's his way back. And so maybe a lot of the convictions he had uh before have changed to yes, Sean, that's a great idea. And Sean Payton has that credibility, right. and I think Russell Wilson has those feelings about him in the first place. And for the record, another story leaked this weekend late that the, you know, upstairs office, second floor office for Russell Wilson right. was a distraction, was uncomfortable. And here's what I worry about with Russell Wilson. Seattle stuff leaked. Now, Denver stuff is leaking. You know, I say this all the time. Um, the story isn't just the story. It's why am I hearing about the story? Who's leaking it? There are a lot of people that find some level of joy in releasing stories that make Russell Wilson look bad. Yeah. Um, and But first of all, I'm pro-leak. So, uh, <laughs> you know, when well, I just want to get that out there. And leak is kind of a misunderstood word, and I won't reveal all the secrets of the trade. But... Um, you know, a lot that we normally would have reported between 2020 and 2021 did not get reported at the time because of COVID and lack of access. Right. You know, people like me were still, you know, texting and calling and all that, but it's not the same as when you're around each other. So I, I think we're going to keep hearing about things from that period, uh, as time goes on, but, um, yeah, I mean, clearly Denver was a problem, and, it, and it's a ridiculous, in my opinion, oversimplification to say, well, it was Nathaniel Hackett as a first-time head coach, and he mismanaged it, and now it'll all be okay. Sure, you want Sean Payton as your head coach over someone who's never done it, like, for sure. Um, but I don't, you know, if anything, I think Hackett, who had put up, you know, who had come from a situation that was weird – and trending weirder with Aaron and the yeah. Packers, but obviously worked really, really well, partly because of Nathaniel Hackett, and both Matt LaFleur and Aaron Rodgers would tell you that. Uh, I think 
that kind of informed his thinking, which is, all right, now Russell's the guy. I'm going to tether myself to him and be all in with him. Um, and yeah, you, you know, you and I talked about the office and some things like that earlier, you know, during the season, um, you know, a six person team cruising around with them. I mean, I just kind of want to hard about to get the job so I could envision the, you know, who's this? Oh, hey, coach, that's my personal uh, performance coach. Uh, he's in charge of making sure. Get out of here. You know, that would have been that would have been fun. But, um, you know, effectively, Sean Payton's going to do the same thing, which is, hey, buddy, you know, you're a quarterback. You're my guy. We're going to be partners, but you're going to be at your locker and not in an office that's bigger than your head coaches. It's just it's just a weird look. Yeah. Well, speaking of something that is a little bit of a weird look, uh, you know, the the darkness retreat, which, again, However, people get right mentally. I'm for. I don't care. Want to smoke a joint? Hold on. I, I, I'm having. I'm having a little darkness retreat. Oh, I see. A very clever there. There you go. Um, whatever it takes. You know, whatever. Whatever it takes. Um, I. I do think um, there's enough credible reporting now. Um, I, I thought when when Aaron Rodgers said, I'm going to do this retreat and it'll get me closer to my answer. I thought, time out. You got to have an answer after the retreat. Right? You can't. <laughs> it's like, honey, I'm going to go with some really cute girls to Vegas and that'll get me closer to if I want to continue our marriage. Like, that's not the answer you got to get, right? Although, if unless charitably, maybe like it's darkness retreat ayahuasca maybe that's the <laughs> double header um yeah I, and by the way like i agree with you whatever gets you through the night and i totally respect aaron's process on it uh it's easy to make fun of he offered the information so people are gonna you know have some fun with it but um yeah i just i, I know that the packers you know organizational attitude has changed um from two years of okay, we got to find a way to make it work with that. Right. Like uh, under any circumstance to listen, man, if you want to go back to being all in and you're into this, we can do something cool here, but anything short of that, you know, whatever. Yeah. So I, that makes me think they're going to get to a place where Aaron says, Hey, you know, I, I want to go here. And then whether they'll send him where he wants is another question. But, um, you know, they believed that, you know, well, I mean, just look at the optics. We saw Patrick Mahomes throwing with his new receivers, all these quarterbacks getting together with people. Aaron blew off the offseason, which is his right, but, um, you know, didn't organize throwing sessions and then kind of seemed to act a little disdainfully toward right. the rookies. Um, they clicked late, made a run, fell just short. Um, and I think the Packers believed that they paid him all the money, which was good. He, he'd earned it. But then he took the money. It was kind of like, oh, okay, you're trading Devante, getting these new guys in. Um, I'm going to just, you know, dial it back a little bit. And it's a position where you kind of got to be right. all in. So he's, so he's so talented and he'll probably find a way to get an edge and a chip and on his shoulder and come back for someone um, and be fierce. Um, 
I'm trying to figure out a way that that happens in Green Bay. It, it feels less likely. Yeah, I, I think um, somebody I trust inside that organization I ran into in the Super Bowl, at the Super Bowl. And uh, I had made a comment to this person inside the Packers organization. This is somebody that wears the uniform about Aaron. And uh, there was a little bit of an eye roll by this person who said, yeah, we're all kind of we're all kind of waiting for Aaron to make up his mind. And it, it wasn't said with anger or disdain, but it was a uh, yeah, what you're seeing is what we're seeing. And, and, you know, and we know this, Colin, in all sports, right? Like when you are performing at a transcendent level, as Aaron did the previous two years, yeah. there's a whole lot that instead of eye rolling, it's like. That's our quirky guy, right. you know, like you put up with a lot. But the second it starts to slip, especially when effort is perceived to be part of it, all then that's what, you know, and the and the Russell Wilson thing is a great example. Then it all starts coming out like, oh, my, do you realize what we got to put up with? I mean, Tom Brady, uh, you know, it's a testament to Tom Brady that you didn't hear that stuff this year, despite the fact that he was clearly – going through some stuff as he said he was gone for a big chunk of trading camp he was allegedly gonna miss wednesdays i don't think that actually really happened much but you know there was all this separation between what tom brady normally would have been doing and what tom brady was doing he played well he didn't play transcendent but he played very well but what a testament to him that we didn't hear much about oh my god tom brady uh, they let him do anything uh and obviously he has a lot of capital in the bank but that's i think what we're getting with aaron now i think there would have been moments of eye rolling in 20 and 21 but he was just so good that in that building they were like hey man yeah <laughs> that's our guy yeah well one of the things that seems fairly obvious is you'd want to send him to the AFC, which has already been reported, and you'd want to send him to the Raiders because of that division, right? Um, the Raiders are a fascinating team. So if you let go of Derek Carr, I don't think you can back into the season with Jarrett Stidham. You're going to take a big swing. It's it's like when you were when when the Broncos were losing Tebow, they went with Peyton Manning. Right. Right. Um, Solve that problem. You, you want to quiet the crowd down. And Derek Carr, say yeah. whatever you want, pretty popular guy, right? Pretty capable quarterback. So, I, you know, yeah. the, the Jarrett Stidham reports, you know, I, he to me, he's a backup or a really, really like 28th best quarterback in the league guy. What do I know? Um, but I do think the Aaron Rodgers, I could see the Raiders saying we'll give you a first one of our fifths a first in that division um that feels right for aaron Rodgers. but i also look at robert saul and the jets and i think mike they're really behind the eight ball here they're yeah, in, they, yeah. they got real issues and and they hired hackett as the offensive so what, what, yeah. what give me I, a raiders jets aaron Rodgers. Where, where do you land on that stuff and by the way let's throw the titans in there yeah uh, I think that's a fair uh, thought. Um, yeah, so I think with the Raiders, if it if they make a move for Aaron Rodgers, that's ownership driven. Uh, I think if it was just Dave Ziegler and Josh McDaniels, based on what I know, they might poke around Aaron, but they're not thinking, "Hey, man, 
that's the answer to our dreams at this point. They probably fixed Stidham, who in the one game I saw him live did look like the eighth best quarterback. Like he was dealing. Yeah. And they came down to earth the next day. But they're they're probably thinking Stidham and then go get a young guy that, you know, they have a pretty high pick in this draft. Yeah. Do something like that. Um, which I don't know if that's a sustainable solution if you're Josh and embattled, but I think that would be the team building uh you know, preference from the front office. But then, you know, Mark Davis was the guy who wanted Russell Wilson. Mark Davis wants a star. He wants someone to put in that new stadium and give them a new identity. And so I could see Mark Davis saying, you know what, let's do that. And, you know, the owners always got that kind of sway. Um, I don't know that it's going to cost as much as a one and simply because they are under the, you know, because of the contract, if they decide, hey, we're moving on, you're going to, you know, we're parting ways, they have a great deal of incentive to get out from under that cap hit. And Aaron knows that. And so that can be used against them. And so, A, I don't know how much it's really going to take to get them. And B, more important, this whole, oh, well, they're not going to send them to a team in the NFC. I don't know that. I mean, Aaron's got leverage in that he can say, fine, I'm coming back, even though we don't want to be with each other. He can also say, go ahead and cut me because you're, you know, your cap situation with this, you know, deal as it currently stands is not good. And he can also, you know, force, you know, figure out with the new team, will there can we change the contract to make it more team friendly? So I think Aaron's a part of this. So I don't know for sure that he's going to not go where he wants. It's possible that the Packers will have their way, but it's possible he'll have leverage. And, you know, with all of that said, the Jets make a lot of sense to me because, you know, if you're Joe Douglas and Robert Sala at this point with a with an impatient owner, with an owner who essentially made you change offensive coordinators and uh, you hire the guy who has the relationship with Aaron, um, you, you had an incredible draft. You've got a lot of pieces around you, but you're in a very tough division. Um, I think a lot, there's a lot of reason where you'd say, yeah, let's do anything to get Aaron Rodgers and put him with this team in this town. Well, he left the columnist business for a while. He's back at the New York post for New York Times bestsellers. Uh, the last one we spent a great deal of time on was The Rise and Reign of Mike Krzyzewski. You can always order that. Amazon, all places you can order books. We bring them on as often as we can. So of the many things to talk about, um, you know, oftentimes New York teams, especially in baseball, Steve Cohen has made the Mets a bit of a villain by having a payroll that's more than the bottom seven teams in the sport. And the Yankees have always had that sort of image, although I found the Yankees – you know, the Reggie Jackson, Billy Martin, uh, Yankees, so vulnerable and so likable, even as a Seattle kid. I loved those teams. They always had quirky characters and real personality, despite Stein, even the owner was crazy. I find the Knicks incredibly likable. Thibodeau is an old school guy. Brunson got sent off by the Mavs. He, they didn't understand how good he was. You know, the Lakers ran off Julius Randle because in a world of threes, he hits twos. And I got to tell you, I think they're going to knock somebody off. Um, 
I like their roster. I think they're a, I think they're another star away. But Ian, I I think if you send them up against a Philadelphia, um, I don't know if they could keep pace with Cleveland's offense. But kind of give me your forecast of the Knicks as a playoff team. I agree. I actually think the only two teams they cannot beat in the East are Boston and Milwaukee in a seven-game series. I actually think they'll push those teams the way they're playing now, and they're getting better. They've got one of the better coaches in the NBA in Tibbs, as you mentioned. Brunson is so much better than I thought he was going to be. I I now believe after watching him, I, I admit it's a bit of a small sample size, but I do think you can win a championship with him as your second best player. I think he's. That. I do too. I do. Yep. And I, I don't think you can win. I don't think you can have a dynasty with him. I, I certainly think you can pick one or two off. And he's only what? He's twenty six years old. I, I think he's smart enough to to know he's got a really good thing in New York. New York City is a place that loves point guards for whatever reason. Always has yeah. high school, college, and pro. And yet the Knicks haven't had one. <laughs> long-term, who was really good since Clyde Frazier. So it's been a long right. time. And finally, the Knicks have a quarterback who can lead them consistently to the playoffs and maybe on some deep runs. I think they will beat Cleveland in the first round if that's the matchup. I wouldn't be surprised if the Knicks hurdle the Cavaliers and get that four seed and home court advantage in the first round. Uh, I, I think they can certainly win that series. I think there's a shot they could upset Philly. I think where it ends is Boston, Milwaukee, wherever that series happens in the playoffs, they'll lose that series. But that, that's a really good step from where they were last year when it seemed like Tibbs' program was unraveling after a really good year one. So um, Brunson's injections obviously key. There is a sense around um, all sports. There are certain franchises where you have to overcome the owner. That's always been a feeling with James Dolan. Give me the person inside the organization that has orchestrated most of this, not a player, but because Dolan has, um, you know, a reputation, fair or not. Um, who's who's behind the scenes? Who's the puppeteer? Who's making these moves in the front office? Because I've always you always hear the same four or five names. You tell me the hierarchy. Who's the key? I think you have to go to, to Leon Rose. I mean, people talk about World Wide West being one of the more mysterious figures in all of basketball and his connections. But I think, and, and listen, World Wide West and Leon Rose, they've been a bit of a partnership over the years. They've made their share of mistakes, certainly, without question. You look at Fournier, you look at Kemba Walker, and, yeah. and Rose actually gave uh, Tibbs some players he didn't want, Reddish. And they had to send out a first-round pick to get Reddish and then send out another first-round pick to get rid of him. So they've made their share of mistakes. But Leon Rose is the guy who made one of the best acquisitions I've seen in New York in any sport in in many years, and that was Brunson. He got that done. He had the relationship to get it done through the family, his representation as well. And so now having, you said, don't name a player. I think it's impossible not to name Brunson because I think he's going to draw free agents, significant NBA veterans, e- either yeah. through a trade or free agency who now want to play with a, with a point who looks at the big picture. Now, listen, yep. he just had 30 points and a half against the Nets and he finished with 39. He, he was not interested in, Hey, let me try to hang 50, 55, 60 on these guys. 
He only cares about winning. He he should have been an all-star and he wasn't. And he was genuinely happy for Julius Randle after he went through a miserable season with the fans and everything else last year that he personally helped resurrect his career and make him an all-star again. He he didn't just say that. It, it looked to me and a lot of people around the Knicks that he really meant it. So his generosity, his spirit, the way he plays, his body language, the way he runs the team, I think is yeah. going to draw better players and put the Knicks finally in position to win a championship. Well, it's funny. Luca couldn't work with Porzingis. Porzingis has actually been pretty good since leaving him. Brunson's a star. He's not winning now with Kyrie. Is there's a there's a James Harden quality to Luca where he's a remarkable score, but a bit ball centric. And so I think I think that it was really a catch. And I think the Knicks deserve a lot of credit. I think they're relatable. Um, I think they I think they really you know Julius Randle's a fascinating player. So I was in like in Los Angeles when he was a Laker. He comes out of Kentucky and the league was really in transitioning to a three-point league. It was the beginning of the Golden State stuff. And I can remember having a discussion with somebody inside the Lakers and they're like, he's going to make a really good player for somebody. We're not sure it's the Lakers. But you know what I'll give Julius Randle credit for? He mostly, Ian, knows what he is and what he's not. He has worked on his game. I think he's a lot better offensive player than the league thought he was going to be. I mean, he was a great high school player, very good at Kentucky. If I if I had never watched Julius Randle and I said, hey, Ian, his numbers are pretty good. Describe him. How would you describe him? He did shoot, I believe it was 41% from three two years ago. Of course, a lot of that was empty gyms in the pandemic. And, and so some people subtracted uh, from that performance from, from three-point range. But I, I think he's a guy who is a load offensively and, and you're right, he's got a little bit of an old school game, but I think he's also given a lot of credit to Brunson for bringing him back. Remember last year, he fought with the fans, he fought with everybody. He had this great first year with Tibbs and helped yeah. really gave New Yorkers uh, a gift really during the pandemic. The fact that the Knicks were competent again and, and just playing some winning basketball had been so long. I mean, really, for the better part of two decades, the Knicks had been a dysfunctional product. And so Randall, I thought, would never, ever have to pay for a meal or a drink ever again in the five boroughs. But then last year, all of a sudden, it all fell apart on him. It looked like he was going to get traded. He was going to play and complain his way out of town. And then he came back this year. He worked out in the offseason. Brunson really helped bring him back. and. Listen, remember, Colin, when the Knicks signed him in 2019 after missing out on Kevin Durant and to some degree Kyrie, they had to apologize to their fan base. Steve Mills, then the team president, apologized for the consolation pieces that he signed because they were supposed to get Kevin Durant and maybe Kyrie Irving. And they struck out and lost out to the Brooklyn Nets. They get Julius Randle, who has done a lot for that organization, will continue to do that. And they basically had to apologize for signing him. So he's right. come a long way. And and I think he deserves a lot of credit for the kind of bounce back he had off of last year. So um, I've said before is that I've always viewed the Maras as a reasonably good ownership group. Um, you know, mostly pretty stoic. They stay out of the headlines. Uh, I don't think they're as... Um, as impulsive sometimes as the the Johnson family and the Jets um, or Dolan can be. Um, I tend to think they're a little methodical. Uh, you know, they gave uh, Tom Coughlin. There was a couple of years it was pretty lean at the end. And then, listen, 
nobody would have guessed Coughlin out of Boston College would have been that good. They, they whiffed on some guys. Um, and I my takeaway is they see in Daniel Jones, even physically, aesthetically, they see Eli and they know how long it took for Eli. And they see a really good kid from the South, um, hard worker, doesn't make headlines, stays out of trouble, committed to the process. And I think they they see Brian Dable as kind of this Tom Coughlin. It's like we found this gem and it's a little rough around the edges. But he's our Tom Coughlin. You know, they always say about New York, it's got its issues, but it, New Yorkers, those problems, those are our problems. And it's like Coughlin was, you know, purple as a plum. He's screaming, but he adapted. And Dayball still feels at times he's as emotional as a coordinator, but it works. And so I think they are committed to Daniel Jones. I think there's limitations. Um, here's the rub, though. Running backs getting second contracts, it's bad business. If you pay Saquon and Daniel, you're going to have 60 million bucks in the backfield. Uh, that's going to hamper free agency. Um, and that defensive line's not cheap, Ian. Where do you go? Do you? What would you do? Where, what do the fans want? Because I think most New Yorkers know you won a playoff game. Two of his best games were against the Vikings, a horrific defense. There's There's a ceiling here. But I think the Maras are in on him. I think they see Eli. I really do. That's my perception outside. You give me your kind of your feeling about how the Maras, what do you do with Daniel? What do you do with Saquon? What do the fans want? I do think the fans want both of them back. And it's kind of funny. I, uh, Daniel Jones, he had 15 touchdown passes this year. He, he did run for 7-2, and that, that counts for something. Ran for 700 yards. His athleticism is the difference maker between – Eli Manning was the better player and the better quarterback. Daniel is much more athletic than Eli, but he has a lot of similarities yes. in the things you talked about. Certainly, they were both coached by, by Cutcliffe. I think that to see Daniel Jones asking for more than what Aaron Judge is now making with the Yankees, who would have thought that <laughs> on Labor Day, right? <laughs> that Daniel Jones, who nearly was run out of town, was a couple of bad games away from being run out of town, now asking for more than $40 million a year, which is – obviously what Judge got long-term. So I think when you look at the 15 touchdown passes this year and, right, some of his limitations as a, as a pocket passer, wow. But I, I think they'll, they'll pay him $38 million a year because second-tier quarterbacks, that's what they, the market suggests they should get. I think he'll get 37, 38, maybe 39. I don't think he'll get 40. And he'll be your quarterback for the next three to four years. I think Saquon's more interesting because he is, uh, you're talking about running back on a second contract. He was number two overall pick by a different general manager, but he is a very good player. I actually think, Colin, he's one of three players on the entire roster you could say could be or will be the best in the world at what he does. Andrew Thomas, Dexter Lawrence, and Saquon Barkley. He's much better, Barkley is at his position, at his job, than Daniel Jones is at his, but he happens to play the wrong position. The way Mara loves both those guys, because they represent the organization the way he wants it represented. Saquon Barkley is, is a perfect, he's like Frank Gifford. He's got the Hollywood looks. He, he's a giant. He just, the way he carries himself, the way he works, and he's a great player. And so he's just at the wrong position. I think they can. I, I was told by a source that during the bye week, the Giants offered him three years at $12 million a pop. 
Another source told a colleague of mine, Ryan Dunleavy, it was more 12.5, maybe over four. But in that 12 to 12.5 range, to me, I'd feel comfortable paying Saquon Barkley 13 per in a, in a multi-year deal. And I think they'll come to an agreement. He, he doesn't want to be tagged. And I've talked to a source close to him who said he really, really doesn't want to be tagged. So they can do it and then still work on a long-term deal. I, I think both will be back. I don't think it'll be a 60 million total, but you're talking maybe, what, 38 for Daniel, maybe 13 for Saquon. It's, it's quite a, an investment in your backfield, but I think it's one that John Mara will make. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing! I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. So, Colin, I uh, this morning as I was driving around town was listening to your opening segment on the herd, as I've done many times over the course of the last uh, 10 years or so. And you were talking about LeBron James and you had some interesting thoughts about uh, just where where he fits into um, into the Lakers long term plans with this latest injury. So my question for you is. If the Lakers end up, let's just say they get into the play-in and then they put up a good fight against Denver, but they lose in six games in large part because Anthony Davis and LeBron are a little bit out of rhythm. But you have this excuse in the back of your head, which is they didn't have this full season with this group. You might be able to put together a more uh, a softer uh, uh, a workload for LeBron and AD next year. Maybe it's better. Are you in a position where you would continue with the core of these two guys moving forward, or would you look to move on at that point? Yeah, I'd look to move on. I, You know, LeBron's such a unique player that y- you can argue there's only been <clears throat> a handful of players in league history. Magic Johnson's another one where they've made every single teammate in their career either better or um, in the Chris Bosh, Kevin Love space for LeBron, I don't know if he made them better. He kind of asked them to sacrifice, but he won them titles and they would not have won titles. So every player he's played with is a better version of themselves or they've won titles. That's very rare. I would keep LeBron until he doesn't want to play. Even an old LeBron will elevate others, teach others, coach others. I think he has just such redeemable value on so many levels. I don't feel that's uh, the same for uh, Anthony Davis. Anthony Davis is simply talented. Um, he doesn't have a tremendous work ethic. Um, um, I, he, although I don't think uh, he's a bad teammate, um, I don't think he's a guy that's going to spend his offseason tutoring. Uh, he doesn't necessarily elevate others, although he does elevate your team. He's a very good defensive player and and on his best nights he's unstoppable he's a he's an really a john calipari won a title with him john calipari this year lost to saint peter's okay <laughs> so he ran through the tournament with him but i would move him i said this before the season is that um certain players most players have limitations once that limitation is injuries um i, I, I there's certainly an argument to be made if you look at lebron and ad and i don't have the number with me we talked about it this morning how many games in a row um, 
since they arrived together in Los Angeles, have Anthony Davis and LeBron James played consecutively? The number is shockingly low, like bizarrely low. And it's getting worse because LeBron's simply getting older. So I would have moved off him. Um, you know, he's a commodity. You can move him. Cross your fingers. He remains healthy. They win a playoff series. They get in. He's viable. Um, I mean, Russell Westbrook keeps getting teams like you can move Anthony Davis. Absolutely. But I would move off him. Uh, I would continue to surround LeBron with um, bigs that run the floor. J- Jared Vanderbilt's been terrific. Shooters always benefit from LeBron. But um, Kevin Durant coming to the West feels like he's changed the West. Like there were some obstacles for this Laker team. I this small, Right now, I feel the Suns will win the West. I really do. Yeah, Phoenix changes the math for everybody at this point. And the weird thing is, and this is the unfortunate thing, and this is what I was complaining about so much early in the season, was that this kind of felt like the last great chance to do something in the Western Conference if you were right. a team that had that was close just because of some things like, you know, the Luka Kyrie pairing, they're going to be able to address their front court issues in the summertime. They're a complete disaster in the front court defensively and on the glass. You know, Phoenix, same sort of thing. They're going to have a lot of opportunity this summer to address some of their specific holes. You know, uh, at like Golden State and the Lakers are kind of in this interesting position where they were close enough to make more of an all-in move. And I, and I feel like specifically with the Lakers, I, I they were even more aggressive at the trade deadline than I expected them to be, but they paid yeah. the price for waiting as long as they did. And you know what's funny? Like Sham Sharania reported today that this specific foot injury for LeBron was one that he actually experienced in January. And him and his team had a decision to make as to whether or not to shut him down or to continue and play on it. And he opted to play on it. And this is where I, if I wanted to make the case for giving it one last go around with these two guys... I would put it based on the workload and the potential next year to keep that lower. So I wanted to share a, a couple of uh, pieces of data with you. So first of all, these are uh, this is Giannis's minutes per game over the last two season uh, two seasons thirty two point seven. Steph Curry over the last two seasons thirty four point five. Nikola Jokic over the last two seasons thirty three point five. LeBron James over the last two seasons thirty six point seven minutes per game. And in addition to that, he's had multiple extended stretches over the last two yeah. years where Anthony Davis has been hurt and he's had to carry limited rosters by himself to float them in the standings, which he did this year, by the way. The only reason they still have a chance to make the play-in is because of the quality of basketball that LeBron played over the course of the end of December and January here in early February. He carried them to this point. So I guess the case that I would make is... I'm a huge believer in the LeBron Anthony Davis ceiling. You saw what it looked like again on Sunday. When the two of those really hit the Jets, they can win rock fights and they can win with skill, which is such a unique uh, uh, capability of those two. That's why they have the high ceiling that they have. So the way I'd look at it is if Anthony Davis can finish this season healthy and playing at an MVP level, which he's got a golden opportunity here over the course of the next few weeks without LeBron to demonstrate that. If he demonstrates that, I look at it as next year, you might be able to limit their minutes, keep them both around 30 to 32 minutes per night, sit them out back to backs and do all the little things that keep the workload lower to where you don't need them to uh, to carry as much as they've done over the last two years, which I think has directly impl- uh, directly led to the injuries that they've been dealing with. So I would give it one last chance if Anthony Davis finishes the year healthy, but Anthony Davis could not finish last year healthy. 
The year before that, he was awesome against the Suns for two games, and then he broke down again. If he breaks yeah. down again, I think then it enters a simple like risk-reward proposition where it's foolish to plan your franchise around a star player in his 20s who literally cannot finish a season healthy. When we, when we presented that idea in our last show, a lot of people kind of framed it as we want to trade AD. No, no, no. We believe in what AD can do when he's healthy. He demonstrated that right. for us over the course of the last few games. It's the it's the health. That's all it is. If he can't finish the season three years in a row in his late 20s, what makes you think that's going to get better in his 30s? That's just bad management at that point. It's bad planning. So I would give I, I would say, regardless of what happens down the stretch here, as long as AD is healthy, I'd give it one more shot. But then, you know, if they break down again at that point, then you have to start looking to move in a, a different direction. You know, I, I was talking about this today. Like, I really like Miami in close games. I think they're, I think they lead the NBA in 13, like, one bucket wins. Um, I don't love, you know, Bam and Jimmy Butler are very good players. Great coach, great defense, great um, crisis management, excellent situationally. They're kind of the opposite of the Sixers that are, Doc's not great situationally. They're sloppy. Last night they had like 20 turnovers. Uh, I don't trust, Hardened late in games, uh, even though he's had a good season. There are these cultures of smart people. I think Miami is a less talented version of Golden State. In a seven-game series, they're just going to win more possessions. They're going to be better late in the shot clock, late in quarters, late in sets. So if Golden State is one of those playing teams, that's my pick. I don't buy into Denver. Um, you know, Jokic is going to probably win a, a third MVP. It's it's weird. There are players that I can really like in the regular season, but I don't trust them in the postseason. And there there have been in my lifetime watching players that I love as scorers, but I don't love them as players. Zach Levine's one. He's obviously he's an explosive, dynamic player. I don't think he's a winning player. I don't think Westbrook's a winning player. I never thought John Wall was a winning player. I never thought Carmelo was a winning player. I just think they're great players. Um, I don't. I don't trust Denver in the West, and I don't trust Philly in the East. So I think if if LeBron and AD were healthy, I would have the two. I know Jokic will win the MVP, but I would have two players. I would have the best defensive player. I would have the, the best ball handler of those three is LeBron. Uh, the best physical presence is LeBron. The best defensive player is Anthony Davis. Jokic will win the MVP. So I think playoff basketball is about being great at stuff. Miami, great situationally, great coaching, great defense. That stuff wins. It's not about depth. It's not about plaques. It's not about MVPs. The Lakers, when AD and LeBron are healthy, they have things they're great at. Vanderbilt just made them a better, deeper defensive team. So I would take the Lakers. Yeah, you know what's interesting is De Denver uh, Denver fans in particular are particularly sensitive about this. I, and I think it's the classic small market thing. They've been kicking everybody's ass all year. I understand why they want a certain <laughs> amount of respect right. and so on and so forth. And to be clear, I think Nikola Jokic is a good playoff player on the offensive end of the floor. He has demonstrated yeah. that. But you said playoffs are about what you're great at. They're also about what you're bad at. And specifically with Denver, they have a couple of entry points on the defensive end of the floor with 
Michael Porter Jr., he can struggle a little bit defending on the perimeter. Nikola Jokic, oh, yeah. when he gets out onto the perimeter, can struggle a little bit. He's actually struggled a little bit with rim protection this year, which has been an issue that has risen as of late. So, like, the way I look at it, like, I believe Denver can win. They absolutely have a chance. But we're sitting here and we're looking at the bigger picture and we're looking at Milwaukee and we're looking at Boston and we're looking at Golden State. We're looking at all these teams that we have as other options. And would you pick the team that has not won an NBA championship and has glaring entry points on the defensive end that we've seen time and time again in NBA history get exploited. I just don't think they're as safe as a bet of a bet compared to some of the other teams that we have elsewhere in the league. I don't think that's an insult to Denver. They're a great team. I think they can win it. I just think that Phoenix is every bit as capable of winning it. I think Golden State is every bit as capable of winning it. And I still think the Lakers and Clippers have an outside chance. Um, On that note, let's move on to the Clippers. So we've had two games uh, with Russell Westbrook in a Clippers jersey. And I actually think he's been pretty solid so far. Ty Lue did pay the I I played uh, Russ in crunch time tax uh, in the Kings game when Russ lost Malik Monk on the game tying shot and then spent the entire overtime period as... Um, uh, the Kings just double teamed off of him and just went at Kawhi and Paul yeah. George everywhere on the floor. So there have been some issues, but I do think you've seen an obvious basketball fit that wasn't there with the Clippers. Specifically, he's pushing the pace, which is a thing that that team desperately needed to do. And one of the things that's been yeah. kind of sneaky good is they run a switching defensive scheme as opposed to the Lakers who ran a lot of drop coverage where they were asking Russ to chase guys over the top of screens. And so in switching schemes, he ends up on bigger players a lot. And Russ is actually one of the better switching guards that we have in the league because he's so competitive. He takes that personally when you try to attack him and he's so big and strong and he's very good technically at fronting the post, which is something he does a great job of in those switches to prevent that post entry. And so he's been a good piece for them on the defensive end. And then one of the sneaky subplots here too is Kawhi and Paul George actually prefer to operate off the ball. They are like guys that are like, yep. let me get to my spot. Let me fight for position. Then you throw it to me and yep. I can go to work. So there's been kind of a natural offensive synergy there. The lineup data is a little skewed because Russ, unfortunately, that first shift against Denver, the Denver starters just beat beat the heck out of them. For I think they went up twenty four right. to eight, which has kind of skewed the data. But I think it's been pretty good so far. So my my question for you is, what have you thought so far about Westbrook in a in a Clippers jersey? I well, I'm not a fan of Westbrook. I I I think if you can avoid using him in situational basketball late in a quarter, like a, a three minutes to go, I don't want him on the floor. But he's productive. He pushes the pace. He gives you great minutes. He gives you great energy. I mean, even with the Lakers, there were moments. Um, was it that Celtics game? There was a big Laker game I was watching, and he had a tip in at the basket, and he's just out of control, flies <laughs> in it, tips it in. I am like, that's Westbrook. Um, in the regular season – Not everybody brings energy. Not everybody is equally rested. You saw it last night. The Celtics were completely flat against the Knicks. First quarter, Tatum's awful. Brown's out. They're done. You know, it felt like like a a first round of the playoffs for New York at Madison Square. They just came out on fire. And so I think uh, the Clippers, because Kawhi, I don't don't like when Kawhi, the offense runs around him. I'm I'm a believer. It's he's way better off ball, and so I think I think Westbrook fits better. LeBron is so great with the ball. Kawhi's better off it. Paul's better off it. So I think he's a better fit. And and again, twenty games left. You can get thirty minutes a night from him. Just get him out of spaces. 
Um, you know, it's in football. Some guys are great in the red zone. So, you know what I mean? There are third down backs, right? Mm-hmm. They're not power backs. It, it's okay. Most athletes are, even the good ones, are situational. There's Jason Tatum is usually always good. That's very unique. So I think when you keep him out of those spaces, they've got a lot of depth. He's fine. But I think with I thought when he came to the Lakers, I remember saying at the time is I think it can work. He can't play off ball. But LeBron and AD get hurt. He'll give him 34 minutes a night. And he had games. He had moments. Mm -hmm. But because of LeBron's ability to control the tempo and pace, um, he got in the way. I think there's going to be moments he's exactly what they need. Give him the ball. Let him burn the tempo. Get up the floor. I'm a total believer in what you said. I think both Paul and Kawhi are terrific in the wing off the ball. Whenever the offense goes through Kawhi, it can be effective. Aesthetically, it doesn't look good. It, It feels like a struggle. Like, right? Like, because Kawhi is so great, it can be effective. It never looks good. It always looks stilted. So, um, and I don't want to, I don't want a guy that plays only three out of four nights, you know, doesn't play black to backs. I don't want him running my offense, right? I'd rather have him off ball. So I think Westbrook's okay for them. Just keep him out of a game with four and a half minutes left if you're tied and it matters. And that's what Tyloo did. They did not play him in crunch time against the Nuggets. Now, that game kind of swung ironically on Paul George, who's been one of their biggest issues in crunch time. He kind of co-opted things in OT and made a couple of crucial mistakes early in the period. And then the game was over just like that. I agree, though. Like Kawhi Leonard's interesting when you get him to his spots. Like it's like, oh, navigate an off-ball screen and get a switch and then dump it to him in the post against Jamal Murray. That's as high percentage of possession as you'll find around the league. Like he's great in those situations. But when you start asking Asking him to initiate offense from the perimeter with a live dribble. That's where things can get a little bit messier. My, This is my big concern with the Clippers call. And this is a wild stat for you. Did you know that they've lost 13 out of 15 games against the Denver Nuggets uh, dating back to the bubble? <laughs> <laughs> like that, that specific matchup is so in their head. They, uh, the Nuggets in particular are, are very, very good at beating their switching scheme by getting the ball to Jokic in their spots. And that, and it's, there's a little bit of a mental advantage there, kind of like you've seen even with Boston and Golden State, like you've talked about. So that, that's kind of where. The the thing that severely limits the Clippers' chances of getting out of the Western Conference is you'll probably have to go through Denver, and I just don't think they can win. Their best bet is that someone like the Lakers or the Warriors ends up getting that eight seed. It can knock the the Nuggets out before they even have to see them. But that specific matchup is an issue for them. They just got to get... They got to get everything clicking at the same time. Like right now, Kawhi's peaking. You know, they're they're integrating Russ and it's going well, but Paul George is having some struggles and Norman Powell's starting to struggle a little bit. There's a bunch of like little pieces there that they just can't get aligned. But they're one of those teams, just like the Lakers, where it's like if they're healthy and you catch them in the the right matchup, they're capable of beating anybody. And that's just the, the Western Conference right now. volume make sure to check out the draymond green show i brought draymond green into the volume because one of the more entertaining voices in sports unique perspective understands behind the rope also chops up with guests like gary payton zach levine tracy mcgrady make sure download the draymond green show 
wherever you get your podcasts, only on the Volume Podcast Network. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch strata coaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.